0: Welcome to the Dive into Reiki podcast. I'm Natalie, and together we will enjoy a series of conversations that explore the journey of Reiki practitioners and teachers from all lineages. 100% Reiki-focused stories. 100% human. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Dive into Reiki, and today I'm super excited. I have two very, very, very special guests, and they live in Europe. And they actually are the author of a book called Women in Reiki uh, that sheds light on beyond Mrs. Takata. We always hear about Mrs. Takata. We don't hear of all the other women that had a very important role in the practice uh, around the world. So please, a big welcome to Amanda and Silke. And they're going to introduce themselves instead of me saying the short bio and butchering it. So Amanda, tell us a little bit about uh, where do you uh, your Reiki background and a little bit about you. So I uh,
1: started Reiki in 2002 in Japan. I was living in Japan, and so I learned out there. And um, my teachers uh, were Chiyoko Yamaguchi and her son, Taro Yamaguchi. Um, so I learned there for a while, and then I came um, – I actually started to travel and teach. And now I am living in Folkestone in um, southeast – I think south – yeah, southeast England. And uh, so I live here. I. Um, teach Reiki um, in Kent in various places in Kent and I treat people from here as well and I also still travel a little and teach Um, and aside from that I do a bit of writing um, as well as this book I do my own um, stuff so I'm enjoying life here in England now.
0: Amazing. Silke tell us a little bit about you.
2: Yeah I'm from Germany but I also started abroad with Reiki in Argentina where I was studying in 1999. I did my, took my first um, Reiki degrees um, with Claudio Marquez in, in Buenos Aires. This was kind of a William Rand lineage as I first learned. Um, when after coming back home to Germany, I continued learning with Franca Java who lived in kind of a neighboring city of mine, so we got um, quite close into contact. I also became the editor of his books in German. Um, And through him, I also met um, Tadao Yamaguchi. So I started with Jikiden Reiki in 2004 for the first time. And um, since then, or not since then, but one year later, I became Jikiden Reiki teacher. And so I'm mainly uh, teaching Jikiden Reiki, also meditation. And um, as a I also have this other side of my profession that I'm a writer and a literary translator from Spanish to German mainly. I I translate novels, poetry, children's books, a little bit of everything.
0: Oh, beautiful. And I don't know if one of you two want to say very shortly what chikidan Reiki, because a lot of people, they are not familiar with different schools. So if you can define what chikidan Reiki is very easily so people have an idea.
1: I'll try and make it short. So <laughs> is Reiki uh, is um, basically um, Chiyoko Yamaguchi, who started chikidan Reiki along with her son Tada Yamaguchi, so um, she learnt from Hayashi Sensei, Chujiro Hayashi. Many people know of him because he was uh, Takata's teacher, right? And so she learned from him when she was a uh, 17 years old in 1938. And she and her entire family actually learned, and um, and so they used it throughout their lives. And so Chiyoko Yamaguchi continued. Um, using it with her family with friends with neighbors and with people who came to see her for treatments for more than 65 years actually and um, she was just kind of simply doing that in her life and through a series of incidents which would just be too long to go into now um, uh, somebody found her if you like that was looking for the roots of Reiki in Japan, and um discovered that she was really the only person that they could find in Japan who had learned with Hayashi Sensei. And so then um she was persuaded after it took a little persuasion, but she was persuaded to begin teaching um yeah, you know, freely uh, to foreigners as well as to Japanese people in kind of bigger seminars. and um, so she and her son to do that, founded what they called Jiikadeniki. Um, And they actually only founded it in 1999, and the first seminar was in 2000. Um, And jikiden means directly passed down. And so they wanted, Jiyoko Sensei was very much about honoring the teachers who came before her. And so she was very concerned about not. Not kind of uh, displeasing, if you like, Hayashi Sensei and his wife and honoring what it was that they taught. And so this this idea of using Jikiden directly passed down was her way of making sure that she was going to use exactly what she'd learned from them, basically. And so Jikiden Reiki kind of grew from there, from Kyoto out and has become much bigger now.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much for that explanation. And what I love is how many lineages and like the more we found history, we're finding, you know, all this beautiful information, which we hadn't when I started ranking early 2000s. Uh, You know, people had no idea yet about where things were. We're just starting to to get all this information. But Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, and I ask this every guest, and I'm gonna go to Silke because I wanted to see like, how did you suddenly they decided to, I want to train in Reiki. What was your first Reiki experience that you said, this is for me?
2: Yeah, in fact, it was a very practical experience, which is probably the best way to get to know Reiki, I feel. I had never heard about it, but my yoga teacher in Argentina, she was just learning Reiki and in fact, becoming a Reiki master at that time. And so she offered me a session after a yoga class. And um, yeah, it was just, it was beautiful. and impressed me very much. I especially remember when she put her hands on the back of my head. That I really was laying, where I felt like directly connected to the whole universe, no? It was a really... Um, strong experience of oneness and in this moment it was clear to me wow I want to learn this I don't really know what it is but uh, it feels good I want to do it and this was the starting point for me I had to travel quite far then because I was based in Cordoba in Argentina and this is like uh, it's like 800-900 kilometers from Buenos Aires and Buenos Aires was the only possibility to learn it in Argentina back then in 1999 no so I took that ride and um, yeah and it was, it was strange because the, the first seminar, it was not so convincing to me because, I mean, it was like um, what in many Western styles lineage is taught, very, um, very basic and quite, oh, I don't know if to say basic, but a mixture of different things. Now, there were lots of talking about chakras and crystals and this and that, no uh, and it was not so much the, the purity that so often stands for Japanese culture, no? if you dig a little bit deeper. Um, but still, even without being so convinced of the seminar, the practice convinced me a lot. So I really, I, yeah, I practiced, um, very intensely on myself with my friends, also with my yoga teacher friends who opened her Reiki school back then. Um, yeah. And in fact, it has been since that ever since, because I mean, it was never my idea to become like a full-time therapist, Reiki teacher or whatever. Um, but the practice, Always kept so convincing, but I just keep doing it, no. And it led me to to become a teacher when with Franka Peta to start editing his books. I translated Taro Yamaguchi's books into German. So this is my way of uniting kind of different um, talents. Maybe I have no what I can uh, what I can do. And now I also, I mean, I enjoy a lot teaching and um, giving sessions. Um, but on the practical side, I think the nicest thing is if you if you manage to inspire people to learn for themselves. I think this is what I enjoy most about Reiki practice, because when you know, oh, they can help themselves, they can inspire others to do more of it. This is maybe the most satisfying part of it.
0: And I, I really love what you said about bringing everything we are into our practice, right? Bringing all those talents together to decide what kind of Reiki practitioner you will be, right? Like if you have talents like writing or painting, like they don't need to be left uh, to the side. So thank you so much for sharing that. Beautiful story. Amanda, how did you find Reiki? How did Reiki do like this to you?
1: <laughs> well, actually, it first went like this um, a long time before I started um, because I used to work in mental health um, down in Cornwall in England. And um, I ran a mental health helpline for the local health authority there. And I worked with various um uh, psychologists and psychiatrists and things. And, and you know, I had intended to become a psych- psychologist and I just wasn't impressed with the system as it was. I felt like there was some more I could do a- another way and I didn't know what it was. Um, and then I heard about Reiki and for some reason it just, I didn't know anything about it, but I was like, oh, this might be it even though I, I didn't really know what it was. And so then I kind of went on this journey, um, both physically, because I started travelling around the world, and at the same time I was looking for a Reiki teacher everywhere I went to kind of learn about it and find somebody to learn from. And, and I just couldn't find what felt like the right teacher. And that was really important to me to find the right teacher. And so so on I went. And then eventually I gave up because I just couldn't find uh, somebody that I really felt that kind of spark to learn with. So so I went to Japan to teach English in the end. And it was only there that I was finally introduced to Chiyoko Yamaguchi. And um, as soon as I was introduced to her, as soon as I walked into her flat, I was like, this is it, this is what I was waiting for, and this is the teacher that I've been kind of looking for, you know? And so it was fascinating to me that it was really through through kind of stopping and giving up that I ended up in the right place, basically, to find the right teacher. I feel
0: that feeling, right, and respecting that feeling like this is not the right person, I'm not going to rush. I That yeah. is important. And I did the opposite, so I will really recommend people to do what you did, right? <laughs> okay, where's the closest teacher in New York? Oh, yeah, half a day. Oh a hundred pounds for a class. This is perfect. Four hours. Right? <laughs> do not do like Natalie, do like Amanda, please.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, that was, that was also a personal journey for me was to listen to my intuition more and more. So I was kind of really trying to play with that as well. So. No, yeah.
0: I, I, and I think it's it's great. It's also, you know, really chatting with your teacher before committing to the class and getting that feeling. I think that's important. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Connection. Oh, yeah, I think it's both. Now, the one side, the Reiki is calling, and you can feel it probably with every teacher, even if the teacher is not the right one for you. But it was a very different click if you find the right person, also. Mm. No? Mm.
0: It's like yeah. dating. It doesn't mean the teacher is not great. It means it's not the teacher for you, right? I, yeah. Mm-hmm. But for mm-hmm. me, it's, it's almost like dating. Like, it has to be right for it to work. Like, and you can always learn from any teacher, but the right teacher will really. Bring your journey forward. So you're in Germany and Argentina, Japan and England. How? I know you both do chikid and reiki, and there is Peter or Java probably in common. But how did you meet? Like how did you like? Hi, I like you. Let's write a book together. How did that happen? (laughs) Well, we we first met in 2006.
1: Actually, I keep thinking it's four, but it was six because I left Japan at that time, and I I was going to start to travel and teach um and Tadao sensei said to me oh i'm going to teach in germany will you come along you know to that one so i said yeah i'll meet you in germany so i kind of went via china and then went to germany and um it was at that point in time that i met zilka and just like we were saying you know when you have that kind of spark that match as soon as we met we got on like a house on fire and it was uh, it was just lovely and so that was the first meeting i'll let you go on to
2: Oh, I don't have to get the whole chronologically right now. Yeah, because we didn't even see so much in the first years. No? But at some point we intensified the, the contact and met in different countries. Also in Belgium, we once met no, where you taught and I came to join your seminar. Um, and since then, we have traveled to Japan two times together. We have seen each other in Germany, in England. It doesn't matter so much where, no. I think if you, if there's a will to meet, you can meet wherever. And of course, we also had lots of contact via Zoom and via Skype. Also, when we were writing, because we are talking constantly to each other, no. And uh, so it was not possible of us to be in the same place in the world. But um, yeah, it has really been a, a very special. Um, journey and collaboration. No, I think for both of us it was the first big collaboration project, like a big book that we we decided to do it together, and we really did it together. The whole process. No, and um, yeah, it was it was good, and I really think it was uh, enriching to the book that we had our both perspectives, and we decided we want to write it like like one, but both of us are writing. No, that's very different from saying we have two voices in it. No, but we managed to do it as as one, and it was interesting. And yeah, we hope people people like it now, because also, um, yeah, I mean, you as a writer, you know, the editing process that is happening when you're just writing on your own. no. And yeah. if you're doing it with another person and both have exactly the same right. And of course, I'm also, it's not my mother language for Amanda, it is, no? So um, yeah, but it was lots of fun also. That's, I think, the basic of our friendship also, no? That it's also fun what we're doing, more fun than suffering. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I did a book at Two Hands and it went very well, but I've also heard experiences where there is not that respect and clarity and support and it's been hell. So I think it's fantastic that you join, of forces because also I think when you're in the creative writing, sometimes you write something that's very clear to you and then the other person is like, what are you writing? That makes no sense, right? We were
1: so, talking about this earlier on, weren't we? Yeah,
0: so, so I think it for me, and for me it's like when it works, as you said, it's that spark, right? When you have a respectful partnership that builds and is not criticism it's just building up like hey can we improve this then I think it's fantastic and Amanda I know you have the book with you there I don't know if you can show it to camera I had the idea it was a tiny book and it's actually a huge book oh and- it's big
1: it's very yeah, big <laughs>
0: it's, and so I think it's fantastic because a lot of time when we talk about Reiki a lot of the books really have the same perspectives and lately we're really expanding and one thing I found very interesting is telling the stories of women in Reiki because beyond Mrs. Takata we'll Mm -hmm. always hear mostly about Hiro Hayashi or some of the other Japanese. We don't hear a lot about the role of many of the women in Reiki. So I wanted to get a little bit, first of all, why it was much needed, but before you two came with the idea, like, you know, there wasn't a book like this. So why did you wake up one day and say, like, we have to do a book about women in Reiki? What was the spark or the research or something that you came up with the idea?
1: Well, the spark comes from from Zilka, so I'm going to let her.
2: (laughs) Yeah, in fact, it was more like, I don't know where the spark had its origin, but it came to me during a meditation. um, Well, I think it was in summer 2018. And yeah, during the meditation, I just had this very clear idea, well, there's not enough written about women in Reiki. And why is this? There are so many women who are practicing nowadays, but also back in times. And um, yeah. So I often get my ideas in meditation, no, that I just there has come something and very strongly and I think, well, this something has to be done about it. Um, and because it was about women and also because Amanda and I were close friends, no, the first thing was, oh, I will ask Amanda if we can do it together. Because the idea was to, right from the beginning, it should be a community project. No, I just want to write about one woman or one woman perspective. I, I would like it to be about many women. Um, yeah. And so we, we started, no, Amanda, you said yes right away. This was great. And we started with a part of a book that were the, that are interviews with um, contemporary Reiki teachers, female Reiki teachers, uh, which, are, which all learned Ricky and Reiki like we did, but are working in different countries in Canada, England, um, in Germany, Japan. Um, and while we are working, uh, I think the idea came a little later, Manda, that we thought ah, it would be really good to collect the stories of the uh, early women in Reiki, like we are calling them, no? Mm-hmm. To to show that we have Mikao Usui, we have Chuyo Hayashi, but who else? Because both of them, unfortunately, they didn't even live to teach so very long, no? And how did the practice manage to to be kept alive? No. And this has so much to do with the women who were practicing. Um, yeah, and so we got more, more excited about the project. I, I think now because we saw put really so much into it, and it also was an occasion for us to answer some questions that we had ourselves. No, I mean this is one of the purposes of writing, I guess, but to really go deeper. No, and you go until you find the answer. Um, you, do we have anything to add, Amanda?
1: Well, just you know, um, it, it felt like we had these kind of we were beginning the interviews with the contemporary women, as you were saying. But they were kind of hanging there and it felt like we needed the foundation that they came from, you know, it was missing. And so it became clear very quickly, actually, didn't it, that that was what we wanted was to include and bring in all these many women who um, were um, part of keeping
2: Reiki going and actually it would have died out without them. Yeah, very strong base, no, that that you could see that it's really the community that it's built on, no, and I think it's still true today somehow, no, that I think there are so many women practicing in their local environment, doing the treatments for family, friends, themselves, no, yeah.
0: No, I, I think it's interesting because, for example, for the podcast, like, it's easier for me when I Google to meet people, like, probably I will say male practitioners tend to go to the top, maybe because they're more outgoing or they publish more books or they they don't have to care for a family and they can go to Japan six months and do research or they're scholars. So sometimes I feel like I'm like I know that they're like probably ninety percent of the practitioners are female, but because a lot of time we have our practice or friends or we do hospitals, where sometimes we're not our voices as not as public as we would want, and I think books like yours or like and podcasts like these or other podcasts as well, like Ricky Radio or anything are trying to bring those voices up. And I mm. think that is very important with, with respect, right? It's not about one better or the other, but let's have the voices at the end. Again, 90% of practitioners probably are, tend to be female or identify as female, right? So I think it's fantastic. So I would love if you can tell me about, we all know about Mrs. Takata, but is there any other women or a couple of women from that root, that foundation, uh, that gave us this gift to all women, uh, current women. If you want to mention perhaps a couple of them, or a story that struck you that that was very interesting when you were researching, you're smiling okay. and laughing,
1: huh? No, no, no. We're, I think we're going. Who's who's going first? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I know. Um, I, you know, there's there's a lot of women that without without whom, like we said, this wouldn't be existing. So we have, you know, Chie Hayashi. There's a lot there, which Zilka will go into a bit more, um, which is obviously Chijiro Hayashi's um, wife. Um, and, and she played such a huge role in continuing things. There's a woman called Chio Sugano, who was um, a very good friends with Chie Hayashi. And she plays a very important role. And she's actually Chiyoko Yamaguchi's aunt. Oh, um, and as i said there was like a a a lot of women in her family who were in fact women and men in Chioko sensei's family who were um, practicing sorry my my notifications are on so um so you know and and then you know there's the the list goes on basically but um there's interesting stories about chie hayashi and chio sugano i'm gonna let zilka maybe look at them a bit more but I think for me, I don't know if if you haven't done Jikiden and Reiki, you probably don't know much about um Chiyoko Yamaguchi. And um and, and I just think, you know, for me, she's a very uh a person you can learn a lot from, you know. And um, you know, one, because as I said, she 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 did Reiki, she practiced Reiki hands-on for 65 years, right? Oh, this is yeah. longer than anyone else that we know of. Um, no one, no one. Yeah.
0: Probably uh, the longest in the history of Reiki, right? Right.
1: Her sister as well, though, um uh Katsue also did it for this long, you know. And um and so, you know, she had an incredible array of experience to learn from, you know. It it's it's phenomenal really. Um and I think, you know, what what is is key about her for me, there's many things and I do write about them in the book, but like you know, she was still doing the same thing. So she practiced for 65 years, right? So she had all those years to enhance and improve, but it didn't need enhancing and improving. She was doing the same thing she learned from Hayashi Sensei when she was 17 years old in 1938. There was no change because what happened was, of course, over time apart from the fact that in japanese tradition you don't change what your teacher taught you um you you know there's there's a a very deep understanding she had of the depth that was in that simplicity you know and how it's only by sitting there with her hands on you know for 65 years that she got to um, experience what she did, that she got to a place where her treatments were phenomenal, like the results she got from them were were huge, you know. And what was really also very beautiful was, um, you know, I met her, of course, just in the last year of her life, basically. And, um, you know, I went to everything I could and learned what I could from her. Um, But she struck me as like she was could be childlike around Reiki, this like wonder around it, this humility around it. She still had it so that when she gave a treatment, because I would go help with treatment sometimes, she gave a treatment and she would be so excited the next time that they came to see what had happened since the last treatment, you know, and to see how they were doing she would be excited about that, you know? And when she talked about the stories from which she had amazing stories about treating burns and and different conditions, you know, and these amazing things that had happened. And um, she talked about them so, she would like shine when she spoke about them, you know? She was excited about it. She loved it. And she never lost that uh, gratitude and respect that she had for it. And you know, I had treatments from her, and um, and I remember I had them right before I learned because I had a problem in my stomach. But I remember being so like huh? because you know I I felt so much happening in my in my stomach where she was treating. I actually felt like she was like pushing. Huh? I used to see this old woman you know standing on the table like, pushing down like with a thumb or a big you know stick because I could feel this thing going in you know. And I, I kind of like looked up and peeked. And she was like this, half asleep, you know, just with her hands on me, you know. And it. I was like, how can it be this simple? How can it be this simple? But it is. And it was. And she continued that. Thank God, simplicity for 65 years. Because now we have access and, and can begin to understand and hopefully emulate that simplicity and the the lack of need to be adding things and changing them you know it it was it was beautiful but she had many fabulous stories you know and she was also just a beautiful mother grandmother she liked to go have coffee jelly at the local cafe you know she was normal and i think for me this was important in a teacher i wanted a teacher that was grounded normal normal what's normal but grounded and 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 uh, human yeah and she had such such warmth and love emanating from her you know this is this is reiki kindness you know this too so yeah i'll pass to you because i i could talk that's, forever. that's <laughs> fantastic
0: i listen like for me what you said is 65 years of the same hands position and the evolution is not adding more techniques it's not adding more tools it's just deepening Your connection, depending on your understanding, is a state of mind, right? And the simpler we keep the practice, the more we can get into that beautiful space of stillness and allow it to do what it needs to do, right? It's allowing. That's
1: exactly (laughs) it. That is exactly it. And I think if you try too hard and start to look for something better or more powerful, you miss exactly what you just said. You miss the stillness that takes you deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's where you get the aha moments and the, the greater insight and the greater connection, you know, is from this. So yeah, you're absolutely right.
0: Well, you put in beautiful words. It's, it's funny because sometimes I tell my students like, and because I'm, I'm probably the most imperfect teacher and student. Like I go through all these fears. So I ask them, when you want something to be more powerful, where is that need coming from? Yeah. You know, it comes from worry, so go back to the presets, right? And and it's okay that you feel it, you just need to handle it. A lot of us will have those feelings our whole life. But don't fight them, take it with compassion, and then go to stillness. But always ask yourself, why do I want to learn another technique? Why do I want to go to another level? And the way you put the stories and you use a word, is just beautiful, right? Is you miss that stillness, it's a beautiful way. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I wish I had known her. Silke, you're not escaping. Yeah. I have to say, I had never heard of Chie Hayashi, and I've read, I've been reading a lot, and I just read about Chie Hayashi like a uh, two months ago in another uh, book from a Japanese man uh, who studied. He started with Western and then started researching. So I've been reading a lot of, of Japanese people talking about Reiki lately, uh, but I had never even known that because Hayashi I was always told like he told Mr. Takata and he had no personal life. He was this officer. So tell us a little bit about her.
2: Yeah, I mean, we can tell not too much because uh, it was hard to research the, the history of women. I mean, I think in any time, in any culture, it's a little harder to find information about women. This is true for Japan also. Uh, but in the end, we were quite happy because we found quite some information on her, which, which was amazing because we feared first it would not be it would not be possible, but then it was uh, possible. Because he was an officer, that's true, but he was married and he also had a daughter and a son. So he had his family life. And uh, as far as we know, the family also supported him in his Reiki clinic in Tokyo. They had a family home in Atami, close to Mount Fuji, but also this, um, yeah, this practice, Rooms uh, where he did his um, uh, his teaching and the sessions where also Mrs Takata went in 1935 when she came to to Japan and in fact also the uh, the daughters uh, Hawaii Takata's eldest daughter and the daughter of um, Hayashi they became friends so there were quite a lot of family um, relations between them this is nice to know also now that it was. Um, I mean, it always seems so far off in history, but if we go a little bit deeper into details, we see that also in history, people were persons like we are now, relating personally and making their experience and and all this. Um, yeah, and so Chia um supposedly was also working with him in his his Reiki clinic, uh, maybe also taking care of the clinic while he was doing this long trip to to Hawaii. Um, in 1938, 1937, uh, 1938, Mrs. H- uh, Takata had invited Hayashi to to Hawaii, and he went there for over half a year with his with his daughter. Um, so, um, yeah, probably Mrs. Hayashi Hayashi was taking care then. Uh, but more importantly, when he took his life in 1940, I mean, this is always taught in the Reiki courses, no, that um, he took his life because he was asked for information about Hawaii, for the on um, the, the coming war, the attack on, on Pearl Harbor that Japan was planning already. And because he didn't want to give his information, having visited there recently and making friends with, with Hawaiian people, um, he committed suicide in 1940. And um, this was not very well seen by the official Japanese um, uh, government of the time of the ruling ruling classes that were mainly Navy classes. Um, and so it was hard to find a successor for his institute. He had the Sayashi Reiki Institute, he had separated some years ago from the Usui Reiki Ryoho Gakkai, um, and now for all the male students or male teachers of the Institute, because the, the founder had committed suicide, it was seen like somebody who had kind of committed um, oh, dishonor.
0: Like, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, it was like a dishonorable death. Um, I mean, he saved his honor, but it was hard to step into his position as the, the Institute leader. Uh, and so in the end, his wife, Chia Hayashi, decided to become the, the leader. And she took over the institute and took over the responsibility for around 5,000 students of the Hayashi Reiki Institute that were there at this time. This was not a, not a small number. And she continued also to travel to other places in Japan where he had been going, like to Ishikawa um, prefecture, where uh, Chiyoko Yamaguchi and her whole family had learned. Um, yeah, and so we really, when we we thought about it, or we talked a lot about it, Amanda. No, we really thought it's amazing. I mean, she lost her husband due to this Reiki, and then after that, she takes over and continues his work. No, I mean, this is so much love and dedication in this, and also so much resilience to have the power to to carry on. No, um, and it was very nice because in our book, um, and also with the help of Justin Stein, I think you maybe you had him on your interviews also. Uh, yeah. No? yeah. We yeah,
0: did, yeah. Like, we had lots of fun together. Yes. <laughs>
2: yeah, because he helped us to find some. Um, uh, he brought some contact with a guy from Hawaii, who had traveled with his family to Japan in 1949, and he took his shoden class with uh, Chia Hayashi in in mm-hmm. in Tokyo. So he could tell us about his experience, and he gave us the, his certificates, photographers of his certificates. So we really had uh, proof. For this that she kept teaching. We had seen certificates before that are from the Yamaguchi family, but this was kind of outside of uh, what came from the Yamaguchi lineage, so it was really, really great. And the other very nice finding was that there was also a letter that uh, Chie Hay- Chai Hayashi wrote to Mrs. Takata in Hawaii at the end of the 50s, uh, because this showed that we were still in touch no? after all these years, and it was a very Nice letter where Tia Hayashi expressed her yeah, gratitude and also honoring all what Mrs Takata had done for Reiki in Hawaii. No, um, yeah, so it was really, really nice to see that this continuity that she did it until the end of her life. No, and she also kept going to Ishikawa where the Yamaguchi family was living and practicing Reiki. As Amanda mentioned before, she was good friends with Chio Sugano, uh, the aunt of Chiyoko Yamaguchi. I mean, we know all these Japanese. Uh, names are very uh, confusing if you hear them just um, quickly but in our book we put some kind of family trees so we hope this will be a little bit clearer for people who have more like a visual tendency to understand who is who in this this Reiki world.
0: No I love that and also like at that time Japan was quite hard like you know we are not familiar but those times with the war and after the war were very hard especially also with the influence of the us where traditional medicine was taking over a lot faster and these things were almost not prosecuted but they were not as well seen as before so they really persisted in a time that was not as easy yeah. yeah yeah it was
1: really it was really not okay to to teach reiki and you know when the american government you know did change things after the war they really made it Uh, it's not okay to teach or use anything that was kind of considered folk remedy, like hand healing or anything like this, as well as anything connected to martial arts and all those kind of things. And so it really did become taboo and you weren't allowed to practice it openly. So I think this is something, there was so much writing this um, where, you know, Zilka and I would kind of come across stuff and then, you know we would get new appreciations of what it was they did and what they sacrificed and the decisions that they made and how hard that must have been the resilience of these women is phenomenal to keep going through these times you know and you know during the war like the the um you know all their stuff was burned in tokyo you know they lost it all but they kept going you know it's it's really quite incredible and then like you say it became almost illegal certainly it wasn't allowed and you weren't allowed to openly practice or teach but she just kept going and it's it's phenomenal i really think it is so, and without them it we you know we wouldn't know any of the stuff that well, we know. i'm
0: thinking it's funny like obviously mika created the practice right but then if you think about it, without these women mrs takata and them there will be no reiki anywhere no right no, you so wouldn't. So I think it's like, we forget that role. And I think with these conversations becoming even more clear, like how beautiful. And also, again, I love that word resilient. Like, yes, Mm -hmm. sometimes we women may not be the most outspoken. We're not there, but we are resilient and we keep going. Right. We just, and I think that is a beautiful quality we have now. And hopefully our voices now also will be also a little bit louder, uh, more and more, but I I love that story of resilience. And I didn't know how hard it was in like, I've been studying more Japan the last few years. I'm like, dude, if they had burned like two-thirds of my city, my husband was dead, we had almost no food, and it was forbidden, Would have to keep on doing it. Yeah. Maybe privately in my bathroom, yes, but I don't know if I'll have the guts to go there. It's also being very honest, you know, like I grew up in Venezuela, it was very violent, and it wasn't nowhere close, and it was really hard to even live the everyday life when they were like, you know, because down bombs falling, you just get really scared. So putting Mm -hmm. the context for me also heightens like, as you say, how resilient and brave they were, right? And mm. I think it's beautiful. And I think also that's part of the culture as well. Like for example, a lot of martial arts were also banned and then they came back in the sixties and seventies for which I'm very grateful as well. So I love that. And then Mrs. Takata, you hear a lot of very different stories of Mrs. Takata, right? A lot of people like really still respect and they literally keep her tradition almost like the way chicken and Rice right ass received from Mrs. Takata. Other people kind of criticize her Americanization, but again we have put things into context. She changed the story a little bit because it was World War II and Japanese think we're not like, hey, cool, Japanese like today, right? So can you give us perhaps a different view or what's your view of Mrs. Takata after this research? <laughs>
2: Yeah, I was very much impressed um, by her way of moving between the countries and moving between the cultures also no? in a time where this was much less common than it is nowadays um, because she was born in Hawaii in 1900. She was already an American citizen because by when Hawaii was part of America but her environment was more Japanese, her way of being educated, her parents had been immigrants from Japan um she had gone to a Japanese school and an English school. So she was, I guess, barely she, she had good Japanese, also, no. But still, when she came to Japan in 1935 with this uh, wish to, to learn Reiki, she really had to fight to convince Chuyu Hayashi to teach her because in Japan she was not seen as a real Japanese because she was born outside. Um and still in Hawaii, probably she was also part of a minority group, no, so she had no real. Um, home or well, yeah. I think now, there's many of us know this feeling, um, but um, it must have been been hard. And also, once she convinced Hayashi to teach her, and then she came back to Hawaii, started her business, 1937, 1938. It became fairly fairly popular. She had many students. And then Puff starts a war, no, and suddenly she's teaching a technique that comes from the, the enemy country. So she had to cut it down right away, no? Um and yet also a, a very passionate practitioner, no, she kept doing it. And she was on her own also, no. Amanda, you mentioned before that Shioko Yamaguchi learned in an environment with all her family. There were many of them. They were supporting each other. They could exchange experiences, whatever. And Mrs. Takata in Hawaii was the, I think, the only teacher. She had students, but probably no other uh, teachers around at that time. And she also couldn't be in contact with her teacher. Hayashi was not alive anymore, and there was no possibility to communicate with others in Japan. So I really have lots of admiration for that. How she kept going. And I mean, I know when I um, when I started learning Reiki and I, I couldn't see the sense of some of the things that I was learning, but I thought, why did she change so much? But seeing it in retrospective, what she did and how she managed to con- conserve uh, the core of it, the essence of it, and how she managed to inspire so many people to keep doing Reiki, how it spread from there to, to the whole world. No, I think she really did a yeah fantastic job no even if there are things that we could criticize no but her love and passion for the Reiki must have been so strong it's um, really cool yeah
0: yeah and I think without those changes we probably will not have Reiki right he will have died with the families in Japan because he will not have taken over so always like now with the centenary of Reiki and Mikaosui and all of that for me it's like he wanted to take those spiritual practices that were for like probably a minority of people with time and education, he wanted to take it more global. And I think in a way it's beautiful 100 years after it's been fulfilled, right? Like, so as you say, like, when we understand her context and the other thing is she also had a family life. I always say, as yes, we see Stacata single. She actually also had kids and everything, right? She was very human as well.
1: And you know, a single, single mother, right? Because her husband died when when the children were younger. So she that's tough, right?
0: Yeah. We again see that resilience and and that takes me a little bit of uh, resilience because I still feel nowadays uh us female practitioners are still very resilient and males too right like it's but but we do we keep and we're very consistent unless for me it's like most people take a class, ninety percent drop up and the ten percent who keep the practice they keep it for life. so what is the role of of Reiki of women in Reiki nowadays? well, because you talk to a lot of practitioners from all around the world. So what is your point of view on that a little bit or, or when you realize what's happening?
1: Do you mean like, what do we see the role of women yeah.
0: now? Yeah, or their experience, or like what were some of their experience or like some of the shares that you single oh,
1: the Oh, in our book, you mean these? Yeah, videos. yeah, yeah. Oh, now I understand, yeah, yeah. Or yeah, your yeah.
0: opinion, like you could have been more polite in your book and you want to be less polite in this podcast <laughs> as well, right? Like, But, but a little oh, bit, like, we were the resilient, we were like the ones, Keeping this tradition alive, and now that is, there is a big resurgence, like as people who identify as female, a will be what has been the experience or the role?
1: Yeah, I think you know um the the doing these interviews with was it nine people, wasn't it all together was really uh, beautiful. Because and you you spoke to this earlier actually Natalie because you know you were talking about using Reiki in our own specific way right so each of us has I like, always like to think of a piece of the puzzle like we we each have something to contribute to the world to the Reiki to everything and and you know what was beautiful about these these um, interviews was we really saw nine people who have learned exactly the same thing because they were all Jikin and Reiki practitioners that we had access to. So they've learned exactly the same thing and yet they're all doing different things, but using the same practice in the same way. And it was really beautiful to see and learn more about these people. And, 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 you know, some, some people, there's one lady who initially got into it because her, Her child was extremely sick and had a terrible, terrible case of um, eczema um, and such that, you know, this poor child couldn't, uh, you know, was just covered head to foot, absolutely covered in open sores, you know. And and, um, she used Reiki um, to to completely eliminate this, you know. Um, And so now her life is dedicated to her family. She has a, a lovely young family or older family now and um and she uses it in the family every day uh to help all of her children and her husband as well as having Reiki practice, and she talks in the book about how she juggled that when they were younger, and how she, you know, had all the kids there for breakfast, sent them all off to school, and then she would have her Reiki people coming, and you know, so you've got people using it in this way with family, um, and then you've got there's a, a interesting lady from Japan who um, was using it. Uh, she has like a breastfeeding clinic, and she worked with midwives a great deal, and so they've used it in a midwife center that they um this group of midwives created and and um so it's really interesting like she's promoting natural childbirth and natural breastfeeding and using reiki within this um and you know and and then um there's a lady in germany who works um you know teaching and treating people but has more of a psychological perspective with it you know and then uh, it's just fascinating like all these different stories and in every single one of them You see the same things. You see um, community, right? Whatever that is within their particular sphere, you see this community happening. And that may just be them and their family. You know, you don't have to, when you're practicing Reiki, like you alluded to earlier, you don't have to go out there and become a practitioner. You don't have to make money from it. You don't have to, you know, you can just use it for yourself. And your loved ones, you know, whoever they are. And um, and that is perfect as it is. And it will enhance your life and their life. And it will bring in greater connection, which is another thing that you see throughout all of the stories, both the former, um, the older um Japanese generation we were talking about and now you see you know greater connection happening and each person has different stories about how they kind of connected with Reiki with others with spirit whatever it is you know it's I think it's it's beautiful so you see these throughout.
0: I I think you highlighted something very important I think sometimes and this is probably also more of a U.S. phenomenon because when I talk to European practitioners honestly the feeling I get is very different But here, and I'm sure like a lot of people practice for themselves, the loved ones, but there is a lot of feeling that if I'm not getting followers on Instagram or I'm not getting money enough or it's not growing my business, my practice is wrong. Like there is a judgment on your practice. And I think we need to separate that. Like, you know, like one thing is perhaps you're not meant to have a regular business or perhaps you're just meant to have a business class and learn how to market yourself but you practice your practice and, and you measure it by, as you say, like, are you making more connections? Are you feeling more connected, more content, more calm? And I would love for people to to know that, to have the freedom, like you can be a Reiki one your whole life. You can do five times a Reiki tree and still not teach. We all need to find what is right for us and, and let go of the need, like followers or money or income. Yeah. It nothing to do with the depth of your practice. And for some people, Yes. <laughs> It mm. coincides, or for example, for me, I love giving sessions. I like to give two sessions a week. That's what, because then I'm like excited. I'm not the person who can live and giving myself permission that is okay. I like doing podcasts and writing. That's where my talent with Reiki la- lies, right? So I, I think giving that freedom and the way you put it was very, very beautiful, right? Like this is a gift: this community and connection and depth of practice, right? So you yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: I think it's, yeah, it's also good not to compare oneself no, in general yeah. and also regarding this. No, and this might be the problem if you go back to the beginning with many male teachers who are stepping more out, who are traveling, who are giving big seminars or speaking on congresses. This might give the idea that this means to be a good Reiki practitioner, or a big Reiki teacher. No? And I think this is really... It's not correct just no. Um and we can see it, or I think we all know that in the, the local practice there are so many women who are doing it, because if you are kind of one of the big guys who's going around traveling, you will have problems to have so much occasion to practice or to give continuous series of of, of sessions, now because you're just not at one place. It's just it's like a um yeah, like a different position that is not better or worse but it's just different no and we definitely shouldn't compare ourselves with that no but um feel the um, yeah the worth of our treatment as it is happening no and not thinking oh i would need the real the real right room or the right session or the right advertisement but um, it can happen everywhere now you can be seeing in a playground a child that hurts itself and you go and put your hands on it that's the the perfect setting no um, and I think that's more a female problems sometimes, no? that women feel less uh, confident about what they're doing in general. No? And also we can see it in the Reiki practice. And I would really like to encourage everybody to take very important what she is doing no what women are doing because it's a it's a great work and Reiki in the beginning it was also intended for that no to help you in your family life uh, to help yourself and your loved ones to be better no and if you look like this kind of Confucian logic no this is where it all starts no if it's, you have peace at home and with yourself it will expand so it's really not not little what we can do in our daily environment yeah. And,
1: you know, Choko Sensei as well, you know, she really stressed daily practice, but that doesn't mean you have to have a Reiki client a day. That means you put your hands on yourself or someone else every day. And that might be just yourself or it might be your pet or it might be your partner. And you just putting your hands on because they've got a headache or a stomachache or You know, so she really stressed this using it every day and making it part of life. So it's not this big thing that you do in addition to your life, right? It just is part of every day. It's a part. And Reiki itself, the energy is a part of life, you know? And so it's the same thing, you know? It's not this special thing that makes us special or that we're not good enough to do, you know, any of that, you know? It's just part of
0: life. That's it. And I'm not going to add to that because you said it so beautifully that I'm not going to take the flavor away because you just, for me, like what you said is like really both of you, the core of this practice. So I'm not going to destroy your beautiful uh, language. Uh, I'm going to leave it at that. And I'm really grateful you're highlighting that because I think a lot of us sometimes go through that or sometimes you're very clear and then you see like, oh, but that person has 15,000 followers and they're making $70,000 a month and I'm not. Well, honestly, who cares, right? As you said, don't compare yourself, center yourself and daily practice. So I wanted to ask because, and you mentioned it too, right? We're not, sometimes it's like, I'm a special person who's channeling some amazing stuff or I'm not good enough, but actually we're all very human. And we all, as we do this journey, we forget that we start knowing nothing. It's a practice that is not, it's very different from the way we're educated in the West. Right, it's non-linear. It's, it's a completely, it's a mind-body thing. So we're supposed to do mistakes to learn. And I say mistakes in quote marks, right? Because they're just like, is the way you grow your perception, your understanding. So I wanted if each of you can uh, share a teachable lesson or oops, or a moment where like you deepen your practice and, but with a sense of humor, most of you were laughing like, oh my God, like look at what I did, right? That moment that really deepened your practice.
1: Zilka, do you want to go first? I I can
2: start. Yeah, yeah. I will, in fact, talk about something that happened during writing the book. No, There's indirect connection to Reiki. Um, Because what was really remarkable, as we told before, we were working closely together on the whole manuscript, sending it back and forth. And I was quite stunned how hard it was to really transfer meaning at some points no? Uh, how even I mean we know each other well I think we have fairly um, similar opinions on many things but sometimes it was just that something totally different came across no and totally misunderstanding even between us and um, yeah this really it made me thought think a lot and and showed me that it's really difficult to to convey meaning through words, even if you're a person who can write, no, but that for the other person it might mean something different. And also, we saw sometimes that it brought up um, topics, no, that somehow, yeah, if you, if maybe it's not easy to get corrected, or you feel the other one always wants to to know the one who knows better, or I feel not so confident with my English is not so good. No, it can trigger you even, and it was a in- very interesting process to go through this, no, and to also see what is coming up if you have to go over the same paragraph for the tenth time and we're still not happy, no? And in some moments it was hard and some it was very easy. Um and I think especially when we wrote about Reiki, our conception of Reiki, no, this was maybe where it was a little bit easier because the Reiki was more flowing through it probably, no. Um but it was, uh, I think, it gave me kind of humility, you know, because I'm a words person and I have translated so many books by now. I always, I fairly think, I transmitted correctly or adequately, you know. But after now writing with Amanda, I'm not so sure anymore, and I really, I double check more often. Um, because I feel that many of the, yeah, the problems between people probably come from the same thing, no, that you're really not understanding that even if you both have a good intention, that it's, it's hard to exactly mean, mean the same thing. So this was not so much a oops moment, but something I, yeah, one of the big insights from this project and to see how, how can you come together again, no, if this, this happens.
0: And I think also it's very valuable advice for people who are teaching at the end, you know, conveying the meaning of other practices or the symbols are. So that's where like the experience, making the classes very experienced is so important as well because something, yeah, it's, it's easier to place a hand than trying to convey the meaning often. So I really appreciate that, that you shared that. Amanda, what was your oops? I would say... Uh, I have quite a few
1: oopses but I'm just trying to think like <laughs> um I think you, you know maybe one thing that that has really helped me teach people is the fact that you know um we teach in Jikiden Reiki we talk about biosen I don't know if you, you yeah, know yeah yes, oh, some people just pronounce just, it don't. always
0: call it biosen also we call it hibiki sometimes so yes
1: right so the biosen and and the biosen that that uh, Chiyoko Yamaguchi learned is you know it has like several like five different levels and you're looking for all these different sensations and and she was very clear on how this will um inform the entire treatment right where you are how long you're there all these kind of things and so Biosyn was you know it's it's really one of the key foundations of your treatment right and I couldn't feel it at all when I learned. I couldn't feel it. And so here I was, this the the person who lived, I it was just me who were at the time, you know, that that was living close by and and learning with them all the time that was non-Japanese. You know, there were other people came in to learn, but they were coming for a short time and then leaving, you know, and and, and so I was the one that was lucky enough to have this connection. I was helping with the books. I was helping eventually with with you know um in the seminars um but I couldn't feel the ocean, and this is when I started with Choka Sensei and um and I was so ashamed I felt so terrible about the fact that I couldn't feel it and at first I pretended I could and and then I and then I I said i can't right because i just couldn't
0: <laughs> you cannot fake it yeah you can fake oh, it you not know, like yeah
1: and it didn't feel good to lie either it just didn't feel good but the you know the um the treatments i was doing had results so i knew something was happening um and probably if choko sensei hadn't been there i would have given up i reckon you know but it was just because i was learning with her and she um had such complete trust and faith that I would I just had to keep going I just had to keep going you know and there was no judgment whatsoever it was just she would come up touch me how is it okay just keep going keep going keep going and you know and what I learned from it was you know the moment I started to feel it was in a moment where I stopped trying to feel it That was when I felt it, you know, and what had happened, of course, was I was trying so hard. It was I was like, how can I be the one that's learning with Chilka Sensei? And I can't feel it. It's not like that's not okay, you know. And so once I gave up the trying and the self judgment around it, um, then I could feel it. Suddenly I could feel it. Suddenly I was like, oh, this is it, you know. And uh, so, so this was, this was a big learning one in terms of humility, I think for me and, and two in terms of now I get to really help my students and those, some people feel it straight away, a lot of people, and some people can't, but I am like Kyoko Sensei was absolutely certain that they will, they just need to keep going and they're probably trying too hard. Yeah.
0: I really appreciate you sharing that. That also has been like a question a lot of people and and they feel so insecure that a lot of times they drop the practice. Mm
2: -hmm. And
0: I remember one of the best, I did a Reiki master and there was this woman who had been practicing for 25 years and her energy was just delicious. There is no other word. Like it was so beautiful. And she never felt any Biosen, any and She didn't. And she said, I just trust. I just trust. She was almost like a blind person. Like she could not, so she said, I place my hands with love and that's what I do. And I love that you share that story because, you know, it's it's also, you were, again, with Choko Yamaguchi, right? Like you were like, so I really appreciate that because I think a lot of us at the beginning, we may not feel a lot. It's just a question of practice and and relaxing. That relaxing, we we're talking about beginning, like Ricky's is about allowing and allowing, that's not our culture. Like, I don't know if like you guys, but especially in New York is type A, we don't allow, we control everything, right? So being vulnerable enough to drop and to just allow things and feeling safe enough. I think that is an amazing tip. And that actually is also a tip to deepen the practice. So uh, the one tip I will ask you, and that's my last question, uh, because I've been torturing you, but you are so good at answering questions. I don't want to let you go. It's a lot of people want to write a book, right? And obviously you both have a, you especially have a background in writing. You also have done some personal writing. One simple tip for people that want to write that Reiki book and they've never done it. They always think they're going to do it and they struggle and you're smiling because it it would be hard. Like, that's the part people don't understand. Writing a book is a lot of discipline and hard, but maybe one tip from each
2: of you. Yeah, my tip would be to really look for something original inside yourself. For me, this comes through meditation often, no? Uh, Because you said specifically Reiki books, no, and I really feel we have enough Reiki books who copy what other Reiki books says. If you're planning to do a book like this better, don't do it. I mean, that's really my honest recommendation. But if you have something new to contribute, a perspective, you'll find something that you always wanted to know and want to go deeper. um, I think then... Very clearly, you will be carried. I think we can say this from our experience with this book, no, that although it took us much longer when we fought in the beginning and in some points it was harder to get information when we had fought. it was always the feeling that we had lots of support no, and not only like human support, but also a bigger support no. And always, if I'm sitting down for a creative project, I'm always looking for this kind of feeling, no that there's really something that wants to get expressed through me. It's not so much looking me for a topic, but um, emptying myself a little bit like in Reiki practice, if allowing, no, and just sitting silent and seeing what really wants to get out of me, what is what I have to say.
0: I love that.
1: Amanda? Well, I actually would say the same thing in, in a slightly different way, probably, because, I, and I think it is probably the same thing, because I would say if you're desperate to write a Reiki book, but you don't know what it is you want to write, I don't know that you should be writing a Reiki book. Because, you know, you're, again, it's like, it's another version of trying too hard. And it it begs the question that we were talking about earlier of why, what is it that makes you want to do that? And then I would go down that journey before I started anything. Like, what is it I want from this to get some inner knowledge around it? If, however, you have something specific that you really want to say that really wants to get out, that you want to that feels like it wants to be contributed, then yes, do it, do it, do it. And just begin. That's what I would say. Just begin. And it's through the beginning of it that everything else begins to come. You know, and and if you wait until you've got everything before you begin, probably you'll never do it. So just start is what I would say, if you have your thing.
0: I think it's fantastic. My first book was an illustrated uh, guide. And actually, I started drawing the meditations because I had trouble remembering. And then I had like 50 drawings. I'm like, well, this may be a book. Like, So it's it's funny how sometimes you actually have, like, you're halfway through and realize, that actually, this is not just a few drawings. This makes sense to share, right? And I, I like that, that original approach, because, yes, there is a lot of books that are manuals. So, you know, do you? Again, you can create your own manual and put it out there uh, because you're going to create your own manual. And that for me, like I always advise people create your own manual because you learn what you want to teach when you do a manual or what you don't know yet. But yeah, like trying to bring a little bit of that originality, right? So thank you so much, uh, both of you. I was dying to meet you. I, I'm just so grateful you gave me the time and you're sharing all this beautiful wisdom with everyone. There are no words. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for sharing all of this. And I uh, will put all your contact information on the notes for everyone uh, who wants to contact you for the book, also for classes. Again, you're, one is based in England, the other in Germany. So please reach out to Silke and Amanda. And I'm sorry, Silke, I pronounce the S in German as an S. Um, th- th- it's, so I hope it's okay to pronounce it. Perfect, okay. Silke.
2: Okay. That's, that's perfect it's how you're saying it.
0: Yeah. I try to learn German and my German, I'm not going to even say a few words because every time I go to Germany, they're like, what? Uh, I'm like, oh. and I love German because I love Mozart's operas and I love to understand what they say. But I have no talent for German. So thank you so much both. Thanks um, for having
2: us. Yeah. Great and conversation. Also, Very interesting questions. was really a yeah, pleasure. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed
1: it.
0: Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you for listening to the Dive into Reiki podcast. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at diveintoreiki.com slash blog. If you found this episode helpful, please hit the subscribe button, leave me a review, or just share it with your friends. It makes all the difference. Thank you. Gracias. Merci.